The title of today's sermon is Costliness of the Soul, the Costliness of the Soul. Scriptures is Psalm 49. The psalmist says to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generation, though they call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boast. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, his glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Amen. Father, we pray that you would Speak through your word in a mighty and powerful way. This portion of scripture, Lord, uh, immediately causes us to think. We pray, O oh Lord, that everyone here today would contemplate these great truths that we're about to speak of. Father, we pray that no one would leave this place unsaved. That is the goal today, Lord, to present the gospel in such a clear and powerful way. And begging you to, by your spirit, that you would apply these truths to the lives that no one would leave this place unsaved. This is our hope and our desire, and the Christian would leave here, Father God, rejoicing even further. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen and amen. You may be seated. This psalm was penned for the same reasons that Psalm number 39 and 73 were penned. The theme of this psalm is simple, just like in 39 and 73. It discusses the following. The afflictions of God's people while here on earth and the apparent prosperity of ungodly men. And if you have lived on earth at any point in time longer than just a couple of years with understanding, you know that it seems like the people of God oftentimes suffer they go through difficulty, and it seems like the world increasingly more and more hates the people of God, hate the message of God, hate the children of God, hate the God of Scripture. And it seems like there is a class of people in this world who flaunt their wealth, flaunt God and His wisdom. They flaunt what Scripture says. They live a life contrary to everything that the Bible says, and they seem to do very, very well. Not only do they do well, sometimes they add to the affliction of God's people. For that, we, all, we have to look at, for example, movie stars who are living their lives in such a way that they are literally living against everything Scripture says, and yet it seems to go well with them. They seem to become more popular. They seem to become richer. They seem to be loved more and more by the masses. 
And yet they stand for everything that God hates. And it's easy when we look at things like this to get discouraged. To say, wait a minute, why am I suffering as a person of God? And why does it seem like they're doing okay and they're getting away with living in such a terrible, vile way and it doesn't seem like God is doing anything? What, what's going on? The psalmist intends to show that the redeemed have no cause for, de for dejection, for complaining, for a saddened spirit when experiencing difficulty because God warned us of these things. Jesus told us that following him would involve a cross. Christ was very upfront from the very beginning. Christ never told us that following him would be easy. As a matter of fact, he bids us to count the cost over and over again in various sermons. And so we are getting exactly that which Christ promised. He promised that the Christian life would not be easy. It would be blessed, but it would not be easy. We cannot complain when God gives us the very thing he told us he was going to give us. But we're also promised that because we're living in a state of humiliation here on earth as pilgrims, wanderers, nomads per se, we are told that because we're living in this state of humiliation, those who are humble or humiliated now will one day be exalted later. Praise God. Amen. And that is our hope. Conversely, we're told that unregenerate men have no cause for glorying in their present good fortunes. Why? Because those who are exalted now will one day be what? Humiliated and humbled. So we're waiting, awaiting that great day of role reversal when Christ comes and everything gets turned upside down. That being said, then, let us look at verses 1 and 2 where we see the psalmist calling everyone, believer and unbeliever, he calls everyone, Jew and not Jew, he calls everyone to listen to what he's about to say. A call to hear. And this call to hear is not just hear and, and listen to it and walk away and not think about it. But it's, it's a call to contemplate it and think about something. To, to spend some time chewing on the ideas that he's about to set forward. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Both the low and the high, rich and the poor together. So our passage opens with a call from the psalmist, the writer who is inspired by God the Holy Spirit, urging all people to pay attention to what is about to be said. Give ear, all people, all inhabitants of the world. The truth of our psalm, he says, is for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, in any age. But not only all people, not only Jews and Gentiles, black and white, tall and short, but all people in every station of life are also called, the psalmist states, also, the low and the high, the rich and the poor. The truth that he's about to share goes beyond culture. It goes to every human being, and no matter what station of life they be, whether you be rich or you be poor, you need to listen to the words that the psalmist is going to be setting in front of you. It's that important. Our truth for today, he says, affects everyone indiscriminately. There's no one that can escape the truth about what he's about to share. This applies to every human being. So therefore he says, give ear, give me your ears, listen. This is a command to listen and to contemplate what is about to be said. Because God's authority, he's saying, is behind every word. Because God is speaking. Well, beloved, I pray that the Holy Spirit will allow all of us the ability to listen to the truth that we're sharing today. Why? Because they are indispensable spiritual wisdom and set forth by God himself. They have nothing to do with man. They don't come from man. They come from God. And God is speaking to you today. He's calling you to hear. You're here today for a very reason, for this very purpose. God appointed you to be here so that you would listen to this truth today. Now, you might have a thousand reasons why you're here you came because of X, you came because of Y, you came only because of this. It's your normal thing that you do on Sunday. It's a new thing that you're trying out. For whatever reason that you hear, that you think you're here, you're here because God brought you here today to listen to these very words. And in verse 3 and 4, he begins telling us God's wisdom. He says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. 
When he says, I will incline my ear to the proverb, the psalmist is confident that the words he's about to speak have originated outside of planet Earth. He says, this is God's proverb. I'm speaking to you God's word. This what sets the Bible apart from any other book on the face of the planet. Everything that you know, everything that you touch, everything that you've come to understand, beloved, has been affected, has been created some way, somehow by by man. It's in sin and it's deteriorating and it's going to be done away with. But God's word comes from outside the realm of humanity. Yes, if you're wise enough, you're saying, Pastor, I know that men wrote these words and I would agree with you, men wrote these words, but the Bible tells us that men wrote these words as God the Holy Spirit carried them along so that every word that is spoken, every word that's written in Scripture is literally from the mind and the heart of God. And that's what makes the Word of God infallible. It makes it true to you and to me. It makes it true to all ages. Is that it's the very mind of God. It's God's revelation to man. And the psalmist is saying, I'm going to give you God's words and because they're God's words, he says, you better listen. God is speaking. These words are not reached through human wisdom or, or earthly wisdom. This makes this what he's about to be shared here of sacred value because it is spiritual wisdom delivered to us by God himself. Consider, consider this thought that, that the word of God is outside of human. No man would have written the things that are in the Bible because they go contrary to the things we really want to do as humanity. No man, no person would write down the things in the Bible because they hem us in to the holiness of God. They call us to live our lives apart from, from ourselves and give ourselves completely to God. And man normally wants to be his own ruler. That alone should tell us that these are the words of God. And the words of God are so beautiful that when you practice them, they bring wisdom into your life. When you live by them, they bring wisdom into your life. This is the thought of Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 6. Moses here writes, See, I have taught you the statutes and the rules as the Lord my God commanded me. I gave you the words of God that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep God's word do God's word, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the people. The people will look at you and see a difference when you're walking according to God's word. You see, when you live your life according to what you think, you make a mess of your life. I've talked to so many people as a pastor and said, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought that my life would take this turn. I never thought that the decisions I make would lead me to this place. I always fancy my life being something completely different. Why is it that I can't get on track? And my thing to them is always this. Because you are living in the wisdom of yourself. And you're a fool. You need the wisdom that comes from heaven. You need God's word. So he says, keep the word of God. Do the word of God. That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people. He says, who, when they hear all these statutes, when they hear God's word, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Look at the beauty of God's word and look how they're living in obedience to God's word. Surely this is a wise people. You see, wisdom is found in understanding how foolish I really am. Wisdom is found in understanding that I have no understanding and that I need God's wisdom in my life to guide my life. Because if I don't have it, I'm going to make a mess of it. So the psalmist calls us to hear. And the first thing he does in verses 5 through 6, after he shares with us that this is God's word, he starts speaking to the righteous, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And he shores them up. He tells them, listen, don't be afraid. Trust in God. The righteous should not fear. Look at verse 5 and 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. As a believer, the psalmist speaks of his own person, but he's representative of all Christians. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the saved of God are persecuted by the unregenerate, the saints of God should not be afraid is what he's saying. 
When the ungodly visit great wickedness and distress upon God's people, the saints should live confidently in the Lord. They know in whom they have believed. We have all lived and will live in quote-unquote times of trouble, as the psalmist says. But the psalmist asks a very pointed question. Why should I fear in those times? Why should the sons of God give in to despair and through their worry act as if God is incapable of delivering the saints? Why should the sons of God doubt and undermine their own confidence in the testimony of God's word? We shouldn't. For we have ample examples of God's deliverance, both inside of Scripture and outside of Scripture. We have seen God carry the saints along from the pages of Genesis all the way to the end of time in the book of Revelation. We have seen the church never discarded, never forgotten by God. We have seen Christians valiantly go into the arena and face lions and beasts unflinching and unwavering and refusing to deny their faith, rather die knowing that God gave them the ultimate deliverance. We have seen the world attack the church and try to destroy the church after every century, it seems century upon century, and the church is still here invictus, in victory. The church of God is going nowhere, praise God. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we have the testimony of scripture and the testimony of history telling us that the saints of God will make it through. And so the psalmist says, why should I be afraid? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, he says, when, when, when I'm surrounded by the evil, at times the evil of this world is visited upon the saints of God to a great degree, wave upon wave of distress. And now we react at these Time speaks volumes about truly how much faith we really have. The psalmist had learned to trust in God. So he was not moved by the vile circumstances that were being visited upon him. He, he, he believed in God. And like Paul, he had learned to trust God in every situation. One of the most often misquoted quotes, uh, scriptural scriptures is Philippians 4.13. People quoted to speak of a positive mindset. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can learn a new art. I can learn a new hobby. I can learn how to play the guitar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what that verse means, not at all. In the context, what Paul is speaking about is what the psalmist is speaking about. No matter how hard life gets, I've learned to trust in God. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Paul says. Not that I am speaking about being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger abundance and need he says look plenty is just as much of a trap as hunger is sometimes because in plenty, we start trusting in our plenty and we forget to trust in God. In our hunger, we're so hungry, we forget to trust in God. He says, I learned the secret. Facing plenty and plenty, hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who what? Strengthens me. I can go through any situation. I can go through the highs of life. I can go through the lows of life. I can go through the terrible storms and I can be at the highest peaks Whatever it might be, because Christ is in my life, he says, he says, I can face any day. That's the secret of the Christian, amen? That's something the world does not have, but that's something that is in your life if you are a believer. You have Jesus Christ, and that you can face any situation in life as long as he's with you. The psalmist knew that he belonged to God, and he knew that he belonged to God's Christ and therefore, he was secure in God's salvation. It was that very security that provided peace in time of persecution. When the storm surrounded him, when things became evil, when things became terrible, he said, yes, but I am saved. Do you see the difference? Yes, it looks terrible, but remember, I am what? Saved. Why should I fear? If men were to take my very life by God's allowance today, 
I'm only delivered into the presence of him who has loved me. Why should I fear? I win no matter what. The church has stood in that security throughout recorded history. Even during the darkest times, scripture and history bear witness to the faithfulness of the saints. And beloved, history will bear witness to your faithfulness as you continue with Jesus Christ. The unbeliever doesn't have the security. The unbeliever lives his life apart from the security. He doesn't know what today is going to bring or tomorrow is going to bring. He has to face all things on his own. He makes all the wrong decisions because he's making them based on what he feels. Their feelings become their God, guides them. Their thinking becomes their God and guides them. And they make every wrong decision for them and their family. Every single wrong decision. And they're stuck on this never-ending treadmill, this loop. They're, they keep running harder and harder. They keep doing everything wrong and they don't get off. They're too proudful to get off. Verse 7 and 8. The psalmist starts speaking about the costliness of the soul. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. These two verses, beloved, are very important to me. And I pray after we cover them, they become very important to you. Here the psalmist begins to contemplate eternity. The Redeemer secure in the hands of God. But he says the unregenerate, although they might be wealthy and prospering on earth, not all of them are, but some are. They have no eternal security, so what's, what's the point? For all their temporal blessings, theirs is a gruesome and horrible destiny, he says. So in general, the psalmist declares the following. Truly, no man can ransom another. Is the answer to my problems to look at humanity to help me? Is my answer to my problems looking to humanity? Somehow we're going to solve our problems collectively together. And the answer to that is no. Truly, no man can ransom, can save another. Man cannot be redeemed from slavery by the efforts of other men. There is no hope of salvation by looking to our fellow man. Humanity cannot save itself. I hope you listen to that. That's so important because it's going on in our world today, right now. We're going to make a better world. As long as we elect President Trump or Biden or DeSantis or whatever other name you want to fill in the blank. It's going to be, we're going to fix this. Nothing's going to fix this, beloved. Amen? Amen? Don't get sidestriped into that trap. It's a trap. As long as we do X, Y, and C, we're going to fix it. You know what? We're going to, our educational system, it's going to fix the problem. We're going to fix racism. We're going to teach our kids how to love each other. Our educational, our educational system is broken beyond repair. This is from a teacher or a former teacher. We're going to fix it. The United Nations, the World Court, the Court in Prague. We're going to come up with systems. We're going to unify the world. We're going to... We're going to fix everything that's wrong. We can do it. We don't need God. That's happening right now. We are going to fix what's wrong with the environment. If there's anything wrong, we're going to fix what's wrong with poverty. We're going to take the money from these people and shift it over there. We're going to fix it. And the more we try to fix it, the more of a mess it becomes. Why? Because truly no man can save another. Beloved, I hope you're listening. Humanity cannot save itself. Sinful man cannot ransom himself from death. Death for such an individual is total. It encompasses the first death. We all die the first day. Eventually you and I are all going to die. But for the unbeliever who's putting his trust in humanity, they will experience the second death, the eternal death. That is a horrible state of being. Not only is humanity not the answer, he says, you're not the answer. He says, no one can give a, a, a ransom for another or give to God the price of his own life. Do you see what he said? So the first part, he says, humanity's not the issue, the, the, the answer. It cannot help you. 
No other human being can help you. He says, but you can't help yourself. You can't make a deal with God. You can't fix yourself. You cannot give to God what is required to save you. And I think that is very important because that's a bigger problem today. If I were to ask a majority of people out in the streets, are you a good person? Everybody would tell me what? I am. The Bible says there is none good. Not one. For as much as the sinner prospers, no man can make amends with God by his own efforts. No man can bribe God or pay the debt that he owes to God, is what the psalmist is saying. So let's consider the world's richest man. I don't know if he still is, but let's consider Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos. Let's say that he has $200 billion or something ridiculous like that. And for argument's sake, let's make him the world's richest man. Let's multiply that times three. So now he has $600 billion, richer than any human being ever on the face of the earth. On the day of judgment, if Jeff Bezos grabbed all that money and put it all on the scale to try to sway his way into heaven, the scale would not even budge. God doesn't need what we have. What is gold but a rock that God created and threw unto the ground? You see, the things that you value are not important to God. Honestly, the things that you think are important, those aren't important to God. And so he's saying, no one can give to God the price of his own life. There's nothing you can, there's no treasure that you have that you can swap your life for. Your eternity for with God, where, you, where God says, you, you, you rejected my son, but you, but you know what, I did X, Y, Z, and God says, well, you know what, that's really, really good, I really want that. It doesn't work that way. You cannot save yourself. And I know what you're thinking, but, I, but deep down I am a good person. I've made some mistakes. I, I love when I talk to people because that's normally where everybody goes to. I... I yeah, you're right, I've done X, Y, Z. But deep down, I'm a good person and God knows that. And the Bible says there's none good, not one. And so you're denying God's very word. For all the goodness that you, that you think that you have, consider if we knew all the evil thoughts you ever had. If I was privy to your thoughts, how about if I was privy to your deepest, darkest secrets and privy to all the things that you've done? You see, God is holy and he requires holiness and we are unholy and so where do we stand with God we cannot give him the price of our life how incredibly accurate is our passage today consider it fully beloved no man can make payment for his own or anyone else's sin all men owe a debt to God God is perfect and man is naturally a sinner man accrues debt and is unlawful living every single day Man accrues dead and is trespassing of God's holy law every single day. How can we pay God what is owed? God is the only Lord of life and the judge that passes the sentence of eternal life or eternal separation, the second death. God is holy and we are defiled. This is the problem of our total depravity. We're born this way. David said, I was conceived in sin. We were born sinners. And we add to our sins all the days of our life apart from God. What are you going to do on Judgment Day? How are you going to escape the wrath to come? What supposed goodness can you offer to God that will counteract all that you've ever thought and done? No, beloved. No man can save another, and no man can give a God a bribe for his own life. Why? He says, for the ransom of their life, the cost. He says, it's costly. It's a treasure that can never suffice. In other words, all that you have, all that you think you have, can never make amends, can never meet God's price. Listen to that again. For the ransom of their life is costly. And what they have can never suffice. Notice that the ransom price is costly. It requires a perfect payment of sinless blood. Man cannot afford such a payment for either himself or for another. 
because man is bankrupt in their own sin. And here in this psalm, believe it or not, we find the reason for the birth, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Son of God. He says, man can't deliver man. Man can't deliver himself. The price is too costly. Man does not have the ability with everything he has to make that, to make that payment. So we have to look outside of what? Man. We must look at the birth of Christ. The incarnation, which we're looking at this Christmas season. Where Christ becomes one of us. And lives a life of perfection, never breaking the law of God. We must look at the crucifixion where he goes to the cross as a substitute and is punished on behalf of those who would believe. And we must look at the resurrection where he gloriously arises from the death to prove not only that he is master and king over death and hell itself, but to guarantee life to all those who have placed their faith in him. Beloved, where are you today? Where are you today? What man could never afford, Christ has paid. Why are you trying to pay a debt that you cannot pay when you have Christ saying, I have already paid it if you play your faith in me? If you surrender your life to me, I can make you new. And let, and let, me, let me add this one thought to you. I hope you're listening. Some of you have so much red on your ledger, so much sin in your ledger. So much debt on your ledger. And Christ is offering to wipe it clean and make you new. Why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you surrender? Verse 9 and 10. Here's a reality that most of us don't want to think about. But all men will die. At least once. All men will die. That he should live on forever, man... And never see the pit. For, this, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish. And leave their wealth to others. The psalmist makes a point that we all must agree to. All men will die. One day I will die. One day you will die. But he makes a marked difference in the kinds of people. The wise man will one day die. Who's the wise man? The person who has put its faith in whom? Jesus Christ. Who's realized how foolish he is and he needs Christ. That person will die and leave everything he has behind. But that person, as he's going to say later, is saved. The fool will die. The atheist, the person who has said in his own heart, there is no God. And the stupid man, he says, will die. The unbeliever who says, look, I'm not for Christ. I'm not against Christ. I kind of believe in Christ. I'm in the middle. I don't. That lukewarmness, the Bible calls that person a stupid person. You can't get mad at what Scripture is saying because it is God who's speaking. He says, the stupid man dies. He, and what, what's common among all of us? We will all leave everything behind. Not one of us will take what we have with us. Since we all die, it is of the utmost importance to be in Christ today then. Only the atoning sacrifice of the Son of God can pay the ransom for our sins. And outside of Jesus, nothing can help us. When death comes, we will leave everything behind. We leave our wealth to others. The only true treasure that crosses over into death is God's forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. It is that forgiveness that promises eternal life. So we conclude that the unregenerate should be terrified for he does not have the wealth of Christ in his account. And look at verse 11 through 13. Not only do we all die, but here's a dirty little secret. Everybody outside of Christ, whether they want to have bravado on the outside and portray something different, every person's afraid to die. Every unbeliever is afraid to die. Now, I've talked to unbelievers, I'm not afraid to die, because you're not facing death yet. But on the moment that you're on that bed, or you have that terrible sickness, or you think you're going to die, if you're not in Christ, all that creeps in is fear. It has to. 
man is afraid to die. Their graves are their homes forever. Speaking of the unbeliever. Their dwelling places to all generation. Though they call lands by their own names, man is in, in his pomp will not remain. The pride of man will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. That is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boast. Selah, think about it. Though we are ashamed to express it, we are afraid to die. We are afraid of what happens after death. That's why we try not to think about it. And that's why we hate funerals. Our psalm says that the unbeliever should be afraid. Our psalm says the unbeliever has great cause to be terrified of what comes next. Because of the fear of death, notice that man in his foolish and wants to leave some sort of legacy behind, something to which to be remembered. So they call their lands by their own names. They, they're saying, oh, I'm going to leave some sort of monument after my own name. Isn't that happening today? Today we see same things with lands and statues and buildings, right? This wing of the hospital dedicated to whatever person had enough money to put down to put their name on that wing of that hospital. This sign, this monument, we, we want to leave something with our name behind. I existed, I mattered, I was here and I was important. That's how afraid to die we are. But what good is it? If those who left their names behind to be remembered died apart from Christ, what does it really matter? Notice the word pomp or the pride of men. They try as they may to avoid death. Like all living creatures, men will die. Moreover, like all men, we will stand before God one day. His wealth and his honor die with him. So verse 13 speaks of the foolish confidence it speaks of men who live in evil sin against God and his people and yet try writing their names all over the world. The Bible calls this foolish confidence as if a name on a memorial could offset the pangs of death and hell. We hear it all the time. Microsoft founder Bill Gates said that he's only going to give like $100 million to each one of his children. Only. The rest of his wealth he's going to donate to charity. He'll be remembered for that most wonderful gift of billions of dollars by men. But what will it buy him with God? You, you see, beloved, we can have all the airports named after us and all the monuments, right? Because we're great people on earth with a lot of influence and power because of our money and our wealth. But what good is it? And notice the Bible is so clear. It says their friends and their acquaintances gather over their gravesite. And they speak words of approval. Selah, think about it. When a rich, ungodly person dies, everybody gathers and says, oh, what a wonderful man he was. What a wonderful woman he was. Look how much money they gave to charity. We ignore all the evil and we talk only about all the good. right? We, we approve of the way they live their lives. Surely this person, he's gone to a better place. Well, the Bible says, no, he is not. They speak words of approval. They elevate these dreadful dead people. Yet the one person who truly can judge is not fooled. God knows these men for what they are. Foolish and absurd men who owe an unpayable debt and who refuse Christ. Men who have not availed themselves of God's provision through Jesus Christ, the Son. And therefore they were utterly bankrupt men. Not rich men, they were actually bankrupt men. Well, you've seen it in the parable, haven't you? If it is a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When you first start reading that parable, you say, oh, the rich man, he's really rich. And that poor man, Lazarus, he's really poor. By the end of the story, you start saying, well, maybe the rich man is really who? Lazarus. And the poor man was really what? The rich man. By the end of the parable, the, 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 the roles have been reversed. And you start looking going, that man that nobody wanted to talk to, that man who had such a horrible skin disease and he was pussing all over the place and the dogs were licking his wounds and nobody would give them something to eat and he was literally dying in the streets and nobody helped that man but he had God he had God and the rich man who dressed in purple the color of royalty and had all the food and 
all the sumptuous and ate gourmet every night and everybody was at his table. When he died, the funeral must have been incredible. All the dignitaries must have shown up. Everybody vying for a little bit of his wealth that he left behind. Wonderful things were said about him. And when Lazarus, the poor man, died, he was thrown in some ditch somewhere by workers probably wearing gloves, afraid to even touch him. Nobody spoke at his funeral. Nobody cared. But Lazarus woke up in the presence of God, angels conducting him there. And the rich man wakes up in hell, begging and screaming for one drop of water. Who's truly the rich person? See, that's what this psalm is talking about. If you're in Christ, you're so wealthy. Amen? You're more wealthy than, than any person, any Jeff Bezos multiplied by any number of dollars. Verse 14, let's look at this role reversal. They're living great. But he says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. In other words, they're going to be eaten up by Sheol with no place to dwell. Let us continue to look at the spiritual wisdom provided by our passage. The psalmist concludes the following. The unregenerate are like sheep. Fat, lazy sheep. Sheep that are fed in large and sweet pastures. And for a season, for their lives, they're just gorging themselves. The fatter, the better. Not a care in the world. But at the owner's pleasure, when it's time, they are put together in clothes and comfortless folds. And they're led away to the slaughter to be devoured. Is that what the... Look at verse 14. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. There's no place for them to dwell. They had their moment in the sun where everything seemed right. Everything seemed perfect for them. But the day of judgment came and they were gathered together and they were slaughtered. The unregenerate are like sheep. Sheep that are meant to be killed. I have to ask you a difficult question. Is this you today? Are you fat and lazy? Are you comfortable in your sin? Do the words I speak to you today make no difference? Are you thinking of when, when is church going to be over? Are you so comfortable in your life circumstances that you do not realize the futility of how you are living? Let me, let me explain this to you. No life lived outside of Christ is worthwhile. Better never to have been alive, the scripture says, than to end up in hell forever. Everything you build apart from Christ, your family, your children, everything you build apart from Christ is meaningless. And none of it will transfer over upon your death. Don't do it. Don't build a life apart from Jesus Christ. Don't live like there is no God because the consequences of such living are eternally disastrous. They are appointed for Sheol. He says, they are appointed for Sheol. Could there be a more terrifying thought than this? God appoints them to suffer for their sinfulness and their disdain for God's people. Physical and spiritual death will consume them they are appointed for Sheol. They are appointed to hell according to the word of God. There's just no easy way to say that. No comfortable way for me to preach that to you. They are appointed to Sheol. But he says, but the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Those in Christ are also appointed, but they're appointed to rule over them. There. There will come a time when the roles will be reversed and the persecutor will stand at the mercy of God and the mercy of God's people. What a glorious day will be when the persecuted church of God will finally stand in victory. The downtrodden will be elevated and the sinfully prideful will be humiliated. So he says it will happen in the morning and the term morning speaks of a very little time. 
speaks that on the day of general judgment and the resurrection of the dead, the unregenerate will have to stand before God and answer for their wicked lives. And that that day is coming sooner than you thought in the morning. Doesn't the night seem long? You ever been sick through the night? Just seems like morning won't come. And all of a sudden it breaks forth in all its glory. Have you ever had a rough night where it just seems like that night won't end? And all of a sudden, the morning comes. The term morning speaks of a very little time. It speaks of a dawning of a new day. Hebrews 10.31 said, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So to the believer, morning is coming. If you're in Jesus Christ, morning is coming. Hold on. Life might be tough now, but hold on. Amen? Because morning is coming. Hold on to God. Role reversal day is coming. Right? And those who have been humiliated in this world, those who have suffered for the name of Christ, will reign and rule with Him. Glory be to God. See, the day of dread for the unbeliever is the day of our joy and our glory for the believer. It's when, like Lazarus, we are conducted into the presence of God. And all sickness and all terribleness of this world is wiped away. But for the unbeliever, that day is a horrible day. Where all pomp and pride is destroyed. You stand before God naked. And he judges you unfit. So he says in verse 15, the saint does not need to fear this. Why? Because a saint, saint is ransomed. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For God will receive me. Selah. See what the difference is? It says they, they go to Sheol. They go into hell. They, they're consumed. But me, I am ransomed, he says. I am received. There's a difference for the people of God. Praise God. Oh, what blessedness is found in this verse. What eternal comfort for the saints of God. If our Lord tarries, you and I will encounter the first death. We will also die physically. However, we need not fear eternal death. The second death will have no power over God's people. And with that confidence and authority, the psalmist declares, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. God will receive me. Christ has promised us this very truth. Christ came to save us, his people. We are ransomed and we will be received. And the church of God must say amen to that. The wonders of the sacrifice of Christ. The matchless truth found in his substitution. And so we conclude for verses 16 and 20. And in verses 16 and 17, the psalmist tells us, Do not be afraid of the rich wicked. He kind of goes over his message again. The money of the rich will not avail him on the day of judgment. He cannot take what he has with him to meet the Lord. He must stand before God like every other man does. He must give an account. He will be found lacking. The moment that the rich are in trouble in this world, they hire the best possible attorney they can. Amen? To get away with what they've done. But on that day, only the saints of God will have an advocate Jesus Christ the righteous the unregenerate will be found alone verse 18 while the rich lives all consider him blessed for he seems peaceful however he accrues more and more wrath every day because of his sins he's blissfully unaware of what's coming and in verse 19 as we have discussed we will go where all the wicked he will go excuse me where all the wicked and repentant men go in everlasting damnation, he will never again see light. I think that is the most terrible part of the description of hell for me in Scripture. Because God is light, and in him there is what? No darkness at all. And if God is light, and the Bible says the wicked go, and he will never again see light. There's never a hope of God for him again. So listen to this. Once you die... It's too late. If you die in darkness today, your only inheritance will be darkness forever. You will never have an op another opportunity to come to Christ. 
Not only the Bible tells us that God is light in him, there's no darkness at all. Jesus says, I am the light of this world, right? I am the light of men. So to die apart from Christ is to die apart from light. Darkness is always a picture of separation, of sin, of evil, of suffering, of torture. Once the first death occurs, the unrepentant will experience the second death in perpetuity. So we go back to the question, why should I fear? Should we envy such men? Should we fear those who are already dead? Should we look at them and say, why do they have such a great life? Why am I suffering? Because Christ told you you would. Carry your cross. Continue with Christ. Should you envy men that are already dead? Verse 20. The prideful and sinful men are without understanding. They are spiritually stupid. He will not entertain the thought that he know that thought that he knows to be true. He is a sinner headed for hell. He hears it, he understands it, he doesn't care. He will continue to live his life the way he's been living it. Because bowing the knee to Christ seems worse to them than the thought of going to hell. It won't once they're in hell, but at least today it seems worse. Have you ever pleaded with someone to come to Christ? I'll ask that again. Have you ever pleaded with someone to come to Christ? Have you ever said, can't you just see it? Haven't you been frustrated sometimes with someone? Like, come on. How long are you going to be like a dog to return to his own vomit living this way? So what the Bible calls it, right? How long will you be like a dog returning to his own vomit, living this way? Why would you keep making these same choices? Why would you stay in these same relationships? Why would you be making these choices that are hurting you and your family? Why won't you stop? Why won't you come to Christ? Pride. Wicked, horrible human pride. I don't need Christ. I can fix my own life. Your life is a mess. I can fix it somehow. Well, you've heard me, beloved, say this. I say it quite often. I'll say it again. The definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again that has never worked, hoping to get a different result. It's like banging your head on the wall over and over again, hoping to cure the headache. It's just not going to happen. You're just going to make things what? Worse. I have pleaded. I know I've pleaded with my brother specifically, at least one of my brothers, I pleaded with my whole family, but one of my brothers over and over again, why would you live this way? Why would you live this way? And the answer is always pride. He will not entertain that which he knows to be true because he does not want to serve God. The thought of serving God to that person is worse than the thought of going to hell. Now, you and I know that can't possibly be true, but it doesn't matter. So I pleaded, I begged, I've had tears in my eyes with people continue going their way. So I ask you today, if you're unsaved, will you leave this place without God today again? For the umpteenth million time, God in his grace has provided another opportunity for you to come to Christ. Will you leave this place again? Will you ignore that which has been by the providence of God shared with you? How good is God to reveal to you the truth of the matter? How good is God to open the curtains of eternity and show you what is truly important? How good is God to show you the danger that you're in if you continue on this very path? You can never stand before him and say, I didn't know. By being here today, God, I I showed you. Beloved, you can live however you please. You can leave this place transformed today, or you can live, leave this place the same way you entered. You can leave this place truly alive, but, you're, but the only way to do that is to put your faith in Christ and surrender to his lordship. Then and only then will you have true treasure. The day is coming where the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and the Forbes and the whatever other people you know of that are super doing well according to this world, they would have traded every single one of their coins for having had Christ. But it'll be too late for them. 
I point you right back to that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He ate all the wonderful food. He had all the wonderful music. He dressed in purple like royalty. When he died, everybody said wonderful things about him. They named the local wing of the hospital after that rich man. The Bible doesn't even give him a name. We don't even care what his name is. But the people then knew his name. He woke up in hell. Do you remember what his treasure was then? Just one drop of water from the finger of the man who had had leprosy and terribleness and whom he wouldn't give the time of day to. Just one drop of water would have been a treasure. That man would have given all the world's treasure that he had had in order to gain the true treasure, Jesus Christ. I'm also reminded of the rich man, the ruler, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus trying to justify himself. And Jesus said, your money is your God. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me and then you will have treasures in heaven. You will have what really matters. With you, he might tell you to sell something else in your life or get rid of a relationship. But for him, his money was so important to him. So that's what he needed to get away. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me and then you will have treasures in heaven and the bible says that he walked away sorrowful for many possessions had him it says he had many possessions but the 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 truth of the matter is the possessions had him he was their actual property he loved them too much that was a real human being that came to jesus who walked away because his treasures were more important to him who's been in hell for the last two thousand plus years Amen. And who every day of the last 2,000 years would give away all his treasure if he had one more opportunity to get right with Jesus Christ. Every day in hell for the last 2,000 years he's been going, how stupid was I to value these things more than the eternal treasure. A real human being that came to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A real human being that walked away loving his things more than Christ. A real human being that if he died in those sins, and all history tells us he did, and church history, uh, tradition tells us he did, a real human being that for about 2,000 years has been screaming in agony knowing that he made the worst and most powerful, terrible mistake of his life. And then I close with two scriptures. What good is it if a man gains the what? And loses his soul. Or what, what would a man not give in exchange for his soul? Amen. What good is if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Considering that a long life on earth is 70, 80 years, 90 years. Maybe for some of you, you might hit the century mark. Very few of us will, but maybe you will be one of them. Life is but a vapor, that you see it now for a second and then it's gone. Ten years ago, I was in my 40s and I was the brand new pastor of this church. Ten years later, I'm in my 50s going, how did that go so fast? Life is a vapor, beloved. Amen? So what's good is to live 70, 80 years on this earth, however you wish, and spend an eternity in hell. So let me close with this verse. That'll be the last pleading I will do for you. I'll let Jesus himself speak to your heart. Jesus says, But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, the things that you love, there your heart will be also. Do you love Jesus? Your treasure's in heaven. Do you love yourself? Then your treasure is the things of this world. And thieves and moss and rust will destroy it all on the day. You will be found with nothing. I beg you, don't leave here apart from Christ. If you want to talk more about Jesus, come and speak to me. We can pray together. We can ask God's forgiveness together. What you need to know is this very fact that you cannot be saved through human efforts. You cannot save yourself. You don't have enough capital. 
to, to give God a bribe big enough for him to forgive even one of your sins. Ask God for mercy. Seek the perfect one who died in your stead. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it be a true and right word. Psalm 49 has spoken. The people of God have rejoiced going, yes, why should I fear? The people of God have been blessed to such an extent and degree that they would say, I will remember this word next time I am tempted to be jealous over the well-being or the well-to-do-ness of the unrighteous. That the people of God would never look upon envy to those who are already dead. May the people of God never fear those who threaten them who are already dead. The people of God would be consumed with the truth of role reversal, that mourning is coming, and that we who have suffered along, who have carried the cross of Christ, will be rewarded eternally. Humiliation will be turned into exaltation. But by the same token, Lord, if there's someone here living their life on their own terms, may they see, O Lord, that they're exalting, their pride is only going to lead to humiliation on the day of judgment. May they see their desperate need. And may they once and for all be changed as they come to Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray these things, Lord, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.